Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 341, recorded June 20th, 2023, and I am Brian Aachen. And Michael Kennedy. This episode is sponsored by us. If you want to support us, um, you can take one of the courses at Talk Python Training. There's an excellent PyTest course there. And uh, please check out Test and Code Podcast and a book about PyTest if you're curious. Um, we also have Patreon supporters, so thank you, Patreon supporters. If you'd like to talk to us or su suggest something, we've got um, uh, we've got a contact form at pythonbytes.fm, but you can also send us uh, something on uh, Mastodon. We're at we're all at fostodon.org at at m kennedy at brian Aachen, and at python bytes, and we check those regularly. Let's hit hit it off, uh, Michael. What do you got for us for the first topic? I'm going to back up what you just said, Brian. Okay. The very first item comes to us from Mario Munoz. Thank you, Mario. Right on Macedon. Awesome. And Mario says, the Pydantic roadmap looks interesting. I especially like the combination of analytics and observability. Looking forward to what the team ends up building. So the first thing I want to talk about is this thing that Mario referenced, pointed us at. The Pydantic 2.0 roadmap, or more specifically, Pydantic Incorporated. So recall Samuel Colvin, excellent guy. Got to hang out. We both got to hang out both with Mario and Samuel at PyCon this year, which was fun. And uh, he announced Pydantic Incorporated, which is a company around building data tools, somewhat around Pydantic and Rust and those kinds of things for the Python and larger, larger base, the larger developer space. So, but it didn't have a ton of details of exactly where they were going. So. This roadmap is two things. It is a hint on what Pydantic Inc. is going to be about, what kind of tools Samuel and team are going to offer. It is also a call to action to help them choose the right direction so that when they go off building things, they might build something that you actually would want to use. Oh, cool. Yeah, right? And so it says, look, um, in return for giving us honest feedback, you have the option to get early access, get inside the closed beta, and all those things for the platform. and if you're familiar with Pydantic, you know it's all about data exchange, data validation, strong schemas where there are none, and those kinds of things, right? Bringing sanity to your data, as they say. So there's two tacks here. Samuel says, well, first, before going into what we might build, I want to tell you what we're not building. <laughs> we're not building a new database or query engine. They're not going to be building or pretending that non-developers or AI can do the job of a developer, right? They want to accelerate developers' workflows. So for example, they're going to have CLIs before they have GUIs, and they're not doing 314 integrations into every conceivable technology, right? Think Zapier or something like that. If this, then that. Mm. And finally, they're not going to have an SDK for every language. They're just focusing on a few languages with Python right up front, I'm sure. So it says, how can you help? Well, give us feedback on the five different things that they're considering, okay? Okay. Number one, that, that this is the one, and this is the one that Mario liked. Uh, Python analytics and observability, a logging and metrics platform with tight integration uh, with Python and Pydantic designed to make the data flowing through your application more readily usable for both engineering and business analytics, right? If you're doing, say, fast API, exchanging data, right? Um, over at Python Bytes, like all the stuff coming to you has come through Pydantic classes because we're using Beanie as the database access layer, which is based on Pydantic, if you don't know. Um, okay, so that's the analytics and observability. Another one is a couple angles here around data gateways for object stores. So think S3, something, you know, Azure blob storage, those kinds of things, visual ocean spaces. Um, 
So a uh, gateway for your object store. So add validation, transformation, and cataloging in front of things like S3 with schemas defined and Pydantic models and then validated by their REST service. Or same idea, but integrated into your existing data warehouse. Number four is a schema catalog. For many, Pydantic already holds the highest fidelity representation of data schemas. So if you had a schema catalog, it could take that to the next level, serving as an organization-wide single source of truth for those schemas. Um, so if you've got a bunch of different different apps or whatever, especially across language, maybe that languages that's, that talk to certain data stores, certain APIs, like might be some kind of central store that says, this is what it looks like. And here's how you maybe generate classes to talk to it. Finally, Dashboards and UIs powered by Pydantic Models, a managed platform to deploy and control dashboards, auxiliary apps, and internal tools, or everything from UI components like forms and tables to database schema would be defined in Python using Pydantic Models. So they go into a bunch of de uh, details with code samples of what they actually might look like uh, if you were to go down one of these paths. But I'm just going to leave it here and say encourage everyone who cares about this to go participate in Samuel's survey so that they get the right feedback that they need. Is all of the above an option? Because that all sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it does sound pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, some yeah. of these don't really apply to me, like um, a schema catalog for the whole company, right? Like it's me, sometimes me and another developer. So it's, you <laughs> it's know, me. but if you were in a large organization, even a team of handful of people or a couple of software teams, I think they'll the, get real valuable. I think they all look great, but um, the data gateway for data warehouses and uh, for object stores sounds really cool because, um, I mean, that's a, uh, sort of uh, actually uh, the yeah they all look pretty good i was curious so you use pedantic now right um mm -hmm. or through it. so what happened so i know one of the things that does it filters out like stuff that or you, it sends a return like an error code or something if if you try to send data and it's not the right type or the right right kind of data mm -hmm. is that reported somewhere or is that part of the analytics and observability thing because I think that would be analytics and observability because right now it just appears as an exception. And if you have integration with something like Sentry or one of them other things, then it would, you know, report it as an exception with some details. But that's, I don't think that's what they're thinking. I think they're yeah. thinking much more, you know, even yeah. possibly like success data going through. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like well, really see how people are using an API. So, or using an entry point. I think that's, yep. That looks pretty cool. Um, yeah. It does look yeah. pretty cool. Nice. Mm hmm. Well, over to you. Um, I'd like to talk about shells. So uh, out of the web and into uh, talking with um, talking with your operating system, kind of. Um, so uh, I want to highlight an article called uh, the, the right way to run shell commands from Python. So it's not, I guess it's not really necessarily shell commands, but kind of. So uh, when you're when you're writing some Python programs have to interact with the operating system um, for things like file system things or starting other applications and whatnot. And there's various ways to do that. But one of the, uh, I guess, I guess that's kind of part of this article is talking about some of these tools. So there's, uh, it talk, starts off with talking about um, uh, natively into Python. So some things that you might not, it, when you start having to think, I have to interact with the, uh, with the shell, you might not have to actually. Like uh, there's pathlib that can, can do quite a bit for you. And you can create temp files and stuff like that with a temp file um, package. And there's um, uh, shutil, which is, I guess, pretty good. And and I've never used syslog or, or signal, but those things are around. Um, 
Okay, so those are those are things built into Python. So make sure that you check out um, the things built into Python already. Um, but then there's uh, there's a couple other uh, different modules that might help. Uh, the OS module. Uh, this he's kind of using going this backwards. Is is probably don't directly reach for the OS module. But there's a few things in the OS module that are really great, like uh, to get your get get environmental variables, like get the path variable or something. Mm-hmm. You can use OS get get env um and there's a few other things like uh getting username and stuff um but uh the uh, i guess get you name i don't know what that is is that username i don't know but anyway uh the um uh so there's a few a few things in the os module that are interesting that you're probably not looking there um i often if you have used subprocess and this is i guess a reminder that um with modern Python development, you, if you're using subprocess, you probably want subprocess run, even though there's a lot of other uh, legacy uh, stuff in the subproject subprocess open, package. Yeah. Open, yeah, P open, for example, yeah, yeah, and call. You probably don't want those. What you probably want is run. Uh, run uh, is kind of a catch-all that you, works for most things now, um, because I I really like. Um, uh, doesn't show it in the example, but there's there's options in Run to just turn on uh, like uh, in encoding. Here's the encoding bit that says you know turn it turn it on. Capture and there's, the standard ends. Oh yeah, there it is. Capture standard capture output equals true sets the is is so that you can capture the output. That's often what I want to do if I'm running a program is find out what its output is. So um, this is handy. Uh, the um, however. One of the things that I haven't used uh, this this article Martin Hines uh, mentions uh, there's one right way and in, in his for his opinion the right way is use the uh, third party package um, which is at uh, which is a, a very unsearchable package name called sh you don't you don't even want to talk Take about it, it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no idea if anybody's written about this because it's really hard to Google sh because it's everywhere. Uh, <laughs> But it's kind of a neat package. Um, so I, uh, I looked it up, of course, and it's, um, uh, it's tested on all sorts of versions and downloaded a ton. So 3.9 million a, a month. Uh, look at the stars, 6.6 thousand stars. So a uh, fairly popular package. So most of you probably already know about it. Um, but the, It's just us, Brian. We, just, just just us, we didn't know. know. But there's yeah. uh, it's kind of neat. There's What it is is you've got commands that are... Um, that are just kind of look like they did before. Like ls is sh.ls. That's kind of neat. And you can pass in arguments. Uh, what's uh, some of the others? Like, um, I'm going to go over to the documentation. You've got ls. You've got like, uh, what else? Oh, I guess it just has ls examples. Get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get's get right That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, um, find. There's a few others. There's a, there's a bunch of others, actually. It's a pretty big package and it isn't it isn't a rewriting of all of these things it's actually talking to your operating system so that's the catch it's talking to a a a unix like operating system so it works on linux it works on mac it will not work on windows apparently so unless you're using windows uh linux subsystem for windows wait Hmm. yeah linux subsystem for windows wisdom maybe uh yeah or linux i guess it is yeah anyway the, the embedded linux you can run on windows if you want Okay. Because that's just Ubuntu, so it should work. Perfect. One thing I like, if you scroll up just a little bit here so I can point at you on it. So it says, um, actually, it's down one page. It says, uh, what you can do is you can say sh.ls, or you can create a command like any any 
executable you want, you can just say sh.command and you give it the path to the executable. Uh, okay. And then the arguments can be passed as if they were a function call on that resulting thing. So instead of like chaining it all together, you could say like create the git command and then you could do a, a git parenthesis, um, you know, check out comma uh, main or prod or whatever, right? That's a pretty cool way to integrate with the command line there. Yeah, that is pretty neat. So, and yeah. that, that'll work with even your, oh, like, like you said. I think so. If you look at the next example down right below the ls underscore command, yeah. Yeah. Custom CMD is what it says. Yeah. So your own command, you can, you can have it run something and have the arguments listed. It's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. yeah. It'd even be another Python command. You might think, why would I ever do that in Python? But, you know, maybe that's coming out of a different virtual environment with like some setup that's got a bunch of things that you're not integrating into your system. I don't know. There might be reasons. Or you're using, so, uh, like if you're using, um, um, what click or, was the typer um they have built-in test frameworks but if you have another a different uh command line interface that you're testing against it might not have a way to run the commands directly so you could use this to run a python mm -hmm. command for testing yeah so eh, neat couple of uh live stream comments brian michael says that michael michael w every time i fall back to os.system out of habit i feel like the old guy measuring his gas mileage in <laughs> rods for hedge hog's head <laughs> okay. i love it and then nice. henry schreiner out there says there's also plumbum of which he's been a maintainer since 2015 similar to sh but he's not well not really up on them both well enough to like give a comparison he doesn't know sh that well i will check out plumbum nice cool thanks guys well what you got for us i think uh, oh yeah no we got one more don't we got another one so over here i've got or do we want to do an ad well Encourage people to check out the courses over at Talking Python Training. Always supports us that way, including the PyTest course. Check out the new mobile app that we built and check out the PyTest book. Really supporting our work uh, that way is yeah. really the best way to support the podcast. And, visit, and visiting the sponsors when we have other sponsors. <clears throat> but I want to talk about buying and selling your data. So there's an article on PC Mag of all places that I got this that uh, talks about a report released by... The Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, which uh, pretty much I'm going to refer to them from here on out. ODNI released this, or declassified this report from January 2022. And the headline is, the U.S. says, the United States says, yep, we're buying your data, including your embarrassing secrets. Digital information can be purchased from commercial data brokers and de-anonymized to ID the person it is tied to, including U.S. citizens says the ODNI. That's a little okay. disturbing. So when you, yeah. you know, when you go to, you know, that ad ridden website that has 29 trackers and 42 uh, ad networks on it, right, they're collecting a bunch of data, but that same network is on a bunch of other sites and they're pulling all those things together. We have these data brokers who gather all that information, but also really, really frustrating things where they buy and sell your credit card data and you don't get to say whether or not you want your credit card data for sale? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was T-Mobile. There's one of the, the mobile carriers who was selling your location data and you didn't get to opt out of it. Just like, well, you're using your phone, aren't you? So why isn't that for sale? And all of that stuff gets combined into like a profile on you, right? A shadow profile. And yeah. so the news is that or the declassified report is here talks about how the U.S. has been buying large amounts of this type of commercial information for purposes of spying and other intelligence-related 
thing, right? And to some degree, I support what the U.S. does with national intelligence. You want them to keep us safe and things like that. On the other hand, this seems really out of bounds, right? Like, I think the report itself even said um, the the declassification of the report prompted Senator Wyden to call on the U.S. government to rein in unchecked surveillance. And according to the report, ODNI does not even know which agents um, are doing this and said if the government can buy its way around the Fourth Amendment, the required um, must have a reason to search people and their properties, due process, then, you know, what's the point of it, right? So that's basically what this this report goes through and, and talks about. And yeah, it's not terribly scary, but it's just another reminder that you should be, when you go to a website, like if you go to, say, CNN.com or somewhere else, and you get a big pop-up, don't you want to support us? Unblock your ad blocker, right? It's not just about selling the ads, right? It's it's about, you know, willingly feeding yourself into surveillance pipelines, into retargeting pipelines that might change the price you pay for insurance or determine whether or not you're eligible for a mortgage, not because of what you present, but because of, you know, some back channel thing that has been discovered about you in some way that you didn't intend to, or probably you know, maybe it doesn't even make sense, right? Yeah. Accidentally clicked a link and now you're you're marked as something that you didn't necessarily mean to be, right? So anyway, you can people can look through this. I just want to encourage encourage folks to like as they think about working with ad companies, they think about creating these products, just you know, try less ads, right? Over at Python Bytes, go to one of these. We have our ads right here. I have like the most intense ad blocking you can get pretty much. And what do we see right there? An ad from Influx Data. Because we're not retracking you. We're not targeting you. Don't see a cookie banner because there's no cookies, right? There's no yeah. third-party cookies, and and uh, this this is certainly possible. So I encourage people to use browsers such as Vivaldi or Brave, not Chrome, that do not track you, as well as NextDNS.io. I put a link to that in the show notes. So um, NextDNS, got to spell that right. Which is this is awesome. I talked about it before, but like on your mobile phone app. So for example, Flipboard is a thing you flip through when your magazine ads or Apple News. When you open it up, those are still full of ads, even if you've got an ad blocker installed on your browser, right? But once you put this on your local network, then everything has ad blocking built in, even your mobile apps, which is pretty excellent. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah I, and I, I highly encourage people with like lots of non-tech savvy people in your household to turn this on so that people that mm -hmm. uh, can be protected anyway um the, the only trick is it's a little bit challenging to turn it off because it's like a router setting for the whole system okay and so what you can do is you can set up dns over http on your browsers right so that way even if you're not at home it still works but also i have a second browser a second browser that if i have to turn off that i set it's https or it's dns over https to a non-blocking one so i can huh turn on the ads with that browser explicitly like to get around this so I don't have to configure things but it's a tiny bit of a hassle but it's it's super worth it yeah uh, another thing we you talked about ads but there's also uh, tracking um, um, analytics so a, a lot of people yeah. have uh, are not doing any ads but they're just curious about how good their site is working and stuff so they turn on Google Analytics or some other analytics and a lot of analytics are not are kind of awful um, about collecting and selling data. Um, you might get a little bit yep. of value. Google gets a lot of value from seeing everybody that goes to your website. So I, I do like a lot of people switching to other types of analytics 
collecting download counts, a lot of times you're you're just your host can do that. You don't need to put that in cookies or anything like that. Exactly. Exactly. So, That's what we did as well. I do want to point out one final thing. I do find it kind of um, ironic. I don't know really what you do about this in life. So this article is on PC Mag, which it's a nice, it's a well-written article by Michael Tan. If I go search that in Haggy and I pull it up, Haggy has like a privacy report on the right-hand side of all these things. <laughs> 19 trackers and blockers, including advertising, Google, email aggressive, fingerprinting, email invasive, fingerprinting, <laughs> on and on and on. It's like, wow, well, okay. Wow. As you go to learn about how this is not ideal, you, you know, <laughs> only get 19 trackers put on you. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, maybe one final thing here is Daniel points out, Pi-hole DNS ad blocker has a feature that lets you disable ad blocking for a period of time. Interesting. And so the next DNS thing is like um, Pi-hole as a service, um, basically. So they're, they're similar. Interesting. Okay. okay. All right. Well, on a slightly brighter note, maybe, um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about PyTest. Uh, yes. So uh, Frank Wiles wrote an article uh, for Repsys um, uh, titled, Pro Tip, PyTest Fixtures Are Magic. They're not really magic, but they're kind. They kind of look like magic. They seem like magic. So, um, I uh, I just wanted to like magic. highlight this because it was a pretty uh, fixtures are the part of PyTest that is the brain shift. So when you get into PyTest, understanding fixtures is is the big thing that um uh that is is difficult to get your head around. So uh, one that's why I really appreciate the the article kind of talking through that. Um. And fixtures, if anybody is unfamiliar, you can kind of think of them like setup and teardown. They they run before and after your test, um, and well, parts of it run after if you set it up. If you need to, um, the uh, now Revsys uh, does a lot of work with uh, Django, so there's um, uh, this is articles talking about the idea of like uh, you to to test your like let's say you have a it has a like it's the hypothetical scenario that you've got a feature where like you're testing a workflow where you have, um, you want your, uh, you, you need to, you, you got to have different users. You need to create an owner because you want to see if you can filter swear words out of comments. So in like something in, and so in like in GitHub or something, you'd have to create an organization and then create a user and then have a, a public repo and a private repo to be able to test your functionality. And there's a lot of setup and there's often a lot of setup needed for a lot of, a lot of software projects so fi- fixtures are helpful so that's the setup he get, gets through uh goes through just talking basically about how to use them um fixtures are just a function that are decorated with pytest.fixture and you use it by in the test you just call the you put the function name the the name of the fixture in the parameter list and it magically just happens for you and that's the magic part uh the uh one of the things i really like is it goes kind of goes in, into depth of even more than that, they're kind of cool. You can compose them. Fixtures can use other fixtures, and you can use more than one. It's kind of neat. Uh, goes through talking about um, uh, also uh, that uh, they can return things. So they can return either just simple data like strings or numbers, but they can also return uh, dictionaries and objects and instantiated things. And they can even return um, a function that can create things for you. So uh, so it was kind of a a, a neat example he he returns he has a, a fixture called make user that returns um that returns a uh a new user created it's a it returns a function that you can call to create a user with parameters and stuff so that's kind of a neat example 
It's like a fixture factory. Factory yeah. fixture. Like yeah, or yeah, like an object factory returned as a fixture thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, another example with like a, a make a make admin fixture that call that returns a function that can create an admin user. Um, so that's kind of neat. Um, one of the things that was new that I hadn't seen, which is kind of a cool idea, is um how to organize your fixtures. So he talks about um putting uh he's got like let's say a, a big um Django project and each of the each of the different uh, Django applications within the project um, have have their own tests, and within those, there's a fixtures file. You you can't use that directly. There there. This is a trick that they're doing is sticking the fixtures in a in a file called fixtures, and then at the top level, having a conf test file that imports those, just imports everything out of it. And at first, I'm like, why wouldn't you? Why would you do that? Why don't you just put conf test files there? And his reason. Whether you think he's sane or not, the reason is so that you can keep the the code local to the application that's using it. Um, it maybe it's a maybe it's even a sub um, a, a sub project or a sub Git repo or something. Who knows? But at the top level, the top level you can, you can have access to it. So any test can access any fixture within in any other application. That may or may not be a good thing for you, but um, but it, it's kind of a cool idea. Uh, and then talks about how um he talks about how plugins uh can have have fixtures also there's a the excellent pytest django uh plugin that has things like uh db which marks your tests that creates the d- database for you before you start and a client that you know it makes it that's a, i'm i'm learning django right now and i'm using pytest django and it's pretty awesome um and then revsys itself has a uh an extension called uh, django test plus which has a thing called TP and uh, that has um, has some extra cool fe- features that that aren't out of the box with uh, with PyTest Django. So that's kind of fun. The last that's bit cool. of and even get requests like within the app. Yeah, to, yeah, and test for the response. Yeah, a lot of kind of like make, what you would do with requests, but inside without actually going through the network. Right, um, and it's it's very similar to the to the unit test framework around the Django built into Django also, but it's um. And I'm glad that the Django Django Test Plus and the Django PyTest plugin are um, pretty consistent with the unit tests. So if you want to switch back and forth, it's not that hard. Um, and as a reminder, you can run unit test functions. You can from PyTest also, but why would you? Uh, the last bit I want to highlight, and I have um, reached out to uh, reached out to Frank, but um, haven't heard anything back. He has an example on auto use. It's just wrong. So. Uh, don't take his word for it. The 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 auto auto use is cool. Auto use makes fixtures just run automatically before your tests without having to call them out. But there, it's really hard to come up with a good toy example for why you'd use it because there aren't very many good examples for why you would use it. Um, it seems magical at first, and then it suddenly doesn't take long to go. Wow, I really should be careful with that because you should be careful with it. Uh, this example shows that a global value being set. Uh, with a fixture, and that's just not true. It doesn't do that. If you want to get the object, the out, the return value of a fixture, you have to name the fixture within the test. So um, that's about it, really. It's a, a pretty fun introduction to fixtures. Yeah, they could fix it up by just having a variable in the module and saying global, and then set its value, right? Like like you would with any other Python function. Yeah, yeah but, if you wanted. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is he, he says uh, Tempter is a really cool built-in fixture, and it is it is, but it's kind of deprecated. Temp path is a 
is what we try to get people to use now because it uses Pathlib and Pathlib is awesome. So mm-hmm. anyway. Indeed. Tony Sherman has been on the, the same journey and says, it seems so great auto use <laughs> at the beginning and things blow up quickly. Yeah. And then Brian, can you open up a website for me? Sure. Before we move on as a piece of follow-up for plausible.io. So Pat Decker, former co uh, co-guest host about a year ago, says plausible is the open source option alternative uh, to Google Analytics, which is GDPR compliant and doesn't set third-party cookies. If you scroll down, you can see that somewhere in there. Cool. Why did I ask you to open it? Why didn't I just open it on my share? Because what? my next DNS blocks it like it does everything else until I like clear the DNS out of my <laughs> web browser, which is going to, oh, it finally came back. It took a while, even though I allow listed it so I could pull it up. But yeah, hmm. it's um, it looks pretty interesting. I had not heard about that. So thank you, Pat, for that shout out. That certainly seems like a I know nothing about it, but what I've already learned is it looks like a, a mega improvement over the other types of retargeting, feeding, third-party yeah. cookie drop-in analytic systems. So pretty cool. Thanks. Cool. Yeah. I have no extras, believe it You or have not. no extras. So it's all you. Okay. Well, I got a couple of extras. Um, uh, I ran across this uh, fun uh, tool um, or fun contest. Um, the International, International Obfuscated Python Code Competition. Uh, I know that those existed for C and other and Perl, uh, but I didn't know that we had a Python one. Uh, submissions are due uh, tentatively by August thirtieth, and I have nothing, no idea about what this this who's who's running this. Um, but um, but it looks fun. Uh, oh, probably the judges. So Julius, <laughs> Kevin, Shane, and anonymous. anonymous will judge you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'm just curious if. I know that it's possible to write out like terrible Python code, but I'm 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 looking forward to seeing the results. Um, next up, um, the there's a a quick uh, we we talk about a lot of things that are using Rust to speed up parts of Python. So there's a decent article um, uh, called uh, "Porting Python Objects to Rust." I think it's decent. I haven't walked through it to see if you can actually do this, but um, the the recommendation here is uh, is if you've got a Python project that you'd like to replace all or part of it with rust um go slow and port pieces of it at a time iterative porting so um i like there's a lot of things that i've thought about or cool python tools that'd be kind of neat if like part of it was speeded up with sped up with rust and become mm-hmm. what maybe step one learn rust step step one. <laughs> or step one have a podcast where you convince other people to write it in rust <laughs> that's right <laughs> also so, an option yeah anyway that's all i got all right cool those are good Final, um, final one here is Henry points out that Scientific Python uses Plausible on their website, presumably. Ah, okay. Okay. Nice. Oh, ready for a joke? Uh, well, almost. I would like to encourage people to submit uh, questions to our um, Ask Me Anything. Uh, mm-hmm. to, let's see. If, do we have a link for that? Um, we do have a link for that. And the link is, which um, yeah, I was going to mention that and somehow didn't, didn't I? It's pythonvice.fm slash AMA2023. I'll put a link in the, the show notes. Okay. Link will be in the show yeah. notes and it'll look something like this. So. Indeed. And we've got a bunch of great comments and thoughts and very kind messages in there as well. So much appreciated. We're going to do our ask me, ask us anything in I think July 11th, if we can make it work then. We'll confirm as we get closer, but that'd be a fun one for a lot of people to attend live because they could also ask us stuff. Yeah. Live. It'll yeah. be good. Sure. Well, all right. Ready for a joke now? Yes. So Stack Overflow is pretty awesome, right, Brian? I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a huge resource if you want to find something, right? You're, you got some kind of problem, 
especially if it's kind of outside the realm of your usual expertise. You're like, ah, I got to work on, get to work on this JavaScript thing. I don't know how it works. If I just Google it, maybe someone else has had the problem or, you know, something's not working right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as a social network, it can be a bit of a rough and tumble place. Come in here and it has this picture of this, this guy <laughs> wearing a t-shirt offering like a bouquet of lavender flowers or something. He just picked up off of the, off, you know, like along the side during some protests. And there's these like cops or military folks in like armor. And he tries to offer it to one of them. It says me asking a question on Stack Overflow. And then immediately they swarm him and like, you know, put him in a, a neck lock and stuff. And it says marked as duplicate. <laughs> it's always marked as duplicate. Yeah. And uh, that's the easy one. Um, <laughs> yeah. It can be a brutal place. Yes, it, it can. It, I, I find it better as read only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it is one of those handy places that happens to have, like when you, when you just take a, uh, your actual error message uh, and Google it, it often lands in Stack Overflow somewhere. Yes, it does. So it is often helpful here. <laughs> if you're willing if you to take it, a little abuse. If, if, if you're you want to get a headlock. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I also heard that like recently, um, there's been a bunch of uh, Stack Overflow like issue moderators and stuff that Reddit. Have, oh, was it Reddit? A Reddit blackout. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the CEO, I forgot the guy's name. The CEO of Reddit decided that they were going to monetize the API of Reddit because, like Twitter did a little bit, kill, Twitter wanted to kill off the third-party clients just to make them go away, so they had more control. Right. That was sort of one of the things that happened when yeah. Musk took over. So. They didn't quite want to do that. They wanted to charge money for the API because they're not showing ads for the mobile apps. And Apollo was the mobile app that was most, is I guess maybe was more accurate, was most popular. And in order for that app to keep running, I think they have to pay $20 million a year in API fee call fees. So they're like, well, we don't make that much money. We're shutting down. And so they're effectively killed off all the third-party clients, which set off a, a protest. And the protest um, manifested in that people were moderating popular reddit areas uh, sub subreddits mark yeah. them all as private to say you know we're taking our content our contributions of we put into reddit off as a way of protesting what you're doing to the community to like close it down and you know extract money from it basically yeah but also i mean also stack overflow so stack overflow is uh and that was six months ago um uh, is uh is <laughs> like blocked because of people uh like it's Obviously, <laughs> I think everybody on our that's listening here knows what Stack Overflow is, but people are taking the questions and just going and pasting them in G chat GPT, getting the answer and putting them back into Stack Overflow. That's mm -hmm. lame. That's <laughs> 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 what even? So apparently uh, that's blocked. So yeah, okay. cool. Well, I sure had fun talking with you today and talking with everybody um, and uh, just uh, excited uh, about the future of not using AI for my software. So. Thanks, Michael. I have to go back to writing it myself as well. Yeah. yeah. Thanks as always, Brian.